You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm your host, Brittany Luce. And as this is only my second week as your new host, I feel like we're still getting to know each other and I should just be honest with you, right? So I got to come clean about something. When I first heard about The Woman King, a big budget Hollywood film that centers powerful black women, I was kind of nervous. Not because of the talent. I mean, Lashana Lynch, John Boyega, Sheila Atin, and the Viola Davis herself, all in the same cast. With Gina Prince-Bythewood directing? That's a no-brainer. And the story itself was interesting. Based on true events, The Woman King is an action-packed war epic centered on the Agoji, an all-woman warrior unit. The film follows them as they train to defend the West African kingdom of Dahomey in the days of the Atlantic slave trade. The reason I was nervous about The Woman King was that Black historical drama films can easily go left, even with the best of intentions. Hollywood can really fumble the ball. But still, I bought a ticket and I saw The Woman King opening week. I should put you out. Mm. I have watched soldiers die because they did not have discipline. Their easy life did not prepare them for... I did not have an easy life! As an Agogia! And it was good. The Woman King is about the Agoji, but it's also a film about love and resilience and sisterhood. Since The Woman King premiered, there's been a lot of commentary about the film, its historical accuracy and diasporic representation. And later on in the show, we'll talk about all of that with some brilliant writer friends of mine. But as a film, The Woman King is a home run. The action scenes are some of the best I've seen in years. Not one hour of fight training was wasted. And every battle exposed something deeper about the characters. I think there's something really amazing about seeing the physicality and the strength and the, and the musculature of these characters, but also seeing where they've been wounded in the past, physically, emotionally as well. That's my first guest today, actor Sheila Atim. That was a huge part of our process. She's one of the stars of The Woman King, and I got a chance to talk to Sheila about playing Amenza, a lead warrior and the best friend of General Nanesca, played by Viola Davis. Sheila is one to look out for. She's been working with Marvel, Halle Berry, Barry Jenkins. She's currently one of the best actors on the London stage, and she's collecting awards left and right. But she's still human and runs from the same things we all do. I came across a few reports that a few members of the Woman King cast would sometimes hide from your trainer. Are the rumors true? And were you hiding? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I was 100% hiding. There's, there's not even a, I think even that quote is mine. I think I said that. <laughs> um, but I, I say that quote with love because that personal trainer is a wonderful person Um, a brilliant trainer, very good at what she does. And we did enjoy training with her as much as anyone can enjoy that degree of sort of physical pain. Um, So yeah, we would hide from her because we were sore. (laughs) Oh, I mean, it came through on screen. I thought all of those sequences were incredible. It was believable to me that you all were soldiers. Like just quickly, like walk me through what, what sort of things would you be doing in this training? Uh, it was kind of split into the, the physical training in terms of body transformation and weights um, for about maybe an hour and a half per session. And then the stunts would be about three hours, stunts and martial arts. And then we would also 
you know, be working out on set if it was a day where we needed to be fit, looking physical. Um, we would oh, pump yeah. up our muscles. Get the muscles to exactly. Pop. So between takes, we would have our weights. We would have resistance bands. Um, it was constant. It was. It was. It was absolutely constant. Yeah, you fought with a spear, right? Mm-hmm. I imagine. Like, was that scary? Like, just this long, pointy kind of tool, or did you take to it? I. I mean, I. I loved it, but it was scary on <laughs> set because I had to keep on telling the stunt performers, like. Listen, because we're doing our own stunts and because I've been told to sell it, I'm going to follow through on this strike. And I think sometimes it, it took them a couple of goes until they really were like, oh, she's got long arms. Oh, okay. <laughs> she's really got long arms. Oh, really long arms. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, but I loved it. I loved having a spear. It felt like another limb. It was amazing. Mm. You know, the, the physicality um, of the performances of the Woman King, I felt they also came through in the intimacy between the soldiers. Mm-hmm. I, and I felt like it was very show, not tell. Moments of dancing or engaging in beauty rituals, mm-hmm. meaningful looks and touches and embraces. Like, it felt like a real sisterly bond to me mm-hmm. watching it. How did you think about those those nonverbal but intimate moments as an actor trying to communicate the relationships between these women who literally fight for a living? I mean, we knew that that was vital to get right in order to complement the the physicality, right? So that we could portray these well-rounded characters rather than yeah. just, they're strong, they've got muscles, they fight, that's it. We also had to show them relating to each other. We had to show them struggling with decisions. We had to show them trying to bond. We had to show them figuring life out. We had to show them when they were injured. You know, we all have scars, um, quite brutal scars as well. And I think there's something really amazing about seeing the physicality and the strength and the, and the musculature of these characters, but also seeing where they've been wounded in the past physically, um, as well as the story discussing how they've been wounded, you know, emotionally as well. Uh, so th- that was a huge part of our process. I think to be able to see that juxtaposition, particularly for black women on screen, is important Mm -hmm. because we're still, you know, fighting for roles that are multifaceted, that have depth um, and that have nuance. You know, I mean, you keep saying we a lot. I assume you're referring to the rest of your cast. And it's a great cast. I mean, you co-star in this movie alongside Viola Davis, Lashana Lynch, Tuso Mbedo, and so many other talented, phenomenal Black actresses. Filming in South Africa, Black woman director, this cast of so many Black women from around the world. I would love to know what like the cross-diasporic conversations were like on set. That, do you know what? One of my favorite things about this project was being able to work across the diaspora. As a, as a Black person, you know, I, I there's been some degree of sort of separation in our story historically somewhere there's been some kind of forced divide and so I I I find it quite a healing thing as well to be able to kind of see each other and just say oh hey you over there you too cool all right well let's do this thing together um so uh, that was one of my favorite things I I went to um I went to Howard University which is a historically black college Mm -hmm. in Washington DC over here and I I grew up with my mom and my sister, I mean, my dad too, but I grew up around so many black women. I have two sisters, I have my mom, I have my aunties, my cousins. And still, when I went to Howard and I was in the girls' dorm my freshman year, 
meeting so many black women from around the world, across the country, my same state, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) who had completely different experiences, there would be these moments, traditions we didn't realize that we had in common or foods that were basically the same thing, but from two different countries. Mm -hmm. Like, because, you know, you're Ugandan and British and Tuso's from South Africa, Mm -hmm. Lashana is Jamaican and British and, and Viola's from the States. Like, I wonder, like, was there a specific moment that you think back to and that you treasure that kind of captured that? Do you know, I think it was probably in the moments of humour. Do you know what I mean? Like, it was just, it was a shorthand. We didn't have to get on the same page. Even, you know, little mannerisms when responding to why something is funny, Um, you know, and all of us just... Bending over, running away. Right, running away. (laughs) That is a thing we all do or like hitting each other a little bit, you know, like putting a hand on somebody (laughs) and like leaning down, like, you know, that kind of stuff or like slightly giving a side eye or whatever, like all of those things. It's just, just, there's nothing like it, you know? So, yeah. (laughs) I... I want to get back to how you even got started acting. You set out to become a doctor and then you didn't get into medical school. How did how did that medical school rejection impact your decision to act? So I was always an artistic kid at school as well. It was a huge part of my life. Um, but yeah, I applied for um, different medical schools. I had, you know, all the grades and all the application was looking nice. And then for whatever reason, I just didn't get any interviews. Um, and it was something that I couldn't understand why. And the teachers couldn't understand why. And, you know, it was just a real confrontation with the fact that sometimes things don't go your way in life. Like the odds weren't stacked in your favor. And then it was like in that moment, like poof, okay, I'm going to be, I thought a singer at the time. I was like, I'm going to be an artist. I'm going to be a singer. (laughs) It's so interesting. Cause like, you know, you're at, it seems to me like you're at this inflection point in your career. Like you just won the Olivia Award for Best Actress for your performance in Constellations. You're working with the biggest names in Hollywood, like Barry Jenkins and Halle Berry. You've done Marvel, Disney, a lot of Shakespeare. I'm seeing a, a lot, lot of Shakespeare, Shakespeare when man. I look at your credits. Listen, <laughs> I love me some classics. <laughs> <laughs> what, what would be your ideal challenge to take on as an actor? Hmm. I'd love to, I would love to do a biopic. Of who? I don't know. That's the first time I've ever given that answer. Usually with that question, I don't really have any specific response other than I just want to keep on challenging myself. You know, if if the only thing I can be sure of is that I'm going to be ambitious, then let me just stick with that and then everything else will hopefully figure itself out. Mm, that was good. I'm putting that in my pocket. The only thing that you can be sure of that you'll remain ambitious. I'm like, look, yeah, it's like, you do need to write, act in something that you've written because that was a bar right there. <laughs> you know, one of the other performances that you've, one of the other, I guess, performances in an American production that that has caught a lot of attention on this side of the pond is you playing Mabel in the Underground Railroad, mm-hmm. directed by Barry Jenkins. Um and you also, obviously, you know, as we're discussing, you played Amenza in The Woman King. You know, these two characters are almost contemporaries in time. Like their stories are only taking place like some 25 years apart or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. But they're each on opposite ends of the slave trade and they lead vastly different lives. Mm. How has it affected you both as an actor and as a person to have explored each of those experiences so close together in your career? It's interesting because... 
as much as what you say is absolutely true that they are on opposite sides of the trade I don't Mm -hmm. feel them as being so wildly different actually Mm. Um, there is a connectivity there uh, that is integral to our experiences and our stories that's not to say that we are a monolith but I think when you're working with scripts and with directors and with actors that are intent on humanizing the characters in the story, and I would say Barry Jenkins and the Underground Railroad, Gina, Prince Bythewood and The Woman King are both two very clear examples of that for me, then a lot of that stuff can fall away and you can just get to the core of what drives people, what drives human beings, how are they surviving You know, both of those characters are just trying to survive in the face of um, a circumstance and an environment that was not built to benefit them. So, yeah, that's a that's a really cool observation. And I'm going to I'm going to think about that more and then probably be like, damn, this is a more intelligent answer. (laughs) (laughs) You just sent us a voice note. (laughs) We'll like, here's my later here's my thesis on uh, Mabel versus Amenza. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's really cool. Thank you for that. <laughs> you know, pulling out from that, like the Woman King has also kicked off a lot of discourse on, you know, how accurately it depicts the Dahomey and and you know its involvement in the slave trade. Like, there are so many layers to that conversation that I've been thinking about. Mm-hmm. I want to get your perspective. Like, how has it been seeing these conversations unfold? As you know. Like someone who was in the film, but also just as a as a member of the diaspora. Mm-hmm. So I I haven't you know kept track of too much of the conversation because I haven't kept track of things generally. Uh, but we we all kind of knew that that was a like a line of discussion that would probably arise from the film. Um, you know, I I sort of encourage people to see the film, but also the understanding that The Woman King in two hours and six minutes cannot do everything for this small slice of history. It just plays its part. It makes its contribution. Mm. We need more stories. We need to see more of that history. Um, And I understand why this is happening because a lot of this history has been buried for so long or Mm. told from a very particular lens. So... This is the this is the purpose of these things to you know encourage discourse to encourage people to go and do their own research to do their own reading to dig up some of this information to be inspired and to look further into other stories that may be like it. Um, it's not easy. It's not easy to do, and you know even the source materials that you're using sometimes are hundreds of years old and have been written by a particular person and therefore have a particular spin on them. So, you know, we're doing what we can, but it's by no means an exhaustive, you know, history of Dahomey in that time. So I hope there's more. We are the plane of freedom. Sheila, thank you so much. This was great. And, um... Congratulations on everything you've got going on. Thanks, ma'am. Thank you. It was a really nice chat. Thanks again to Sheila Akim. She stars in The Woman King, which is in theaters now. Coming up, I speak with two smart critics and friends of mine about The Woman King, its triumphs, its historical accuracy, and what makes this film a first of its kind. You heard Sheila Akim, one of the stars of The Woman King, say it herself. The movie represents just a slice of history that has been overlooked for so long. 
Even if you haven't seen The Woman King, you might have seen some conversation around how it depicts West African history, specifically the kingdom of Dahomey, where the film takes place. So for some perspective, I turned to some very smart friends. Film curator Maya Cade, who created the Black Film Archive, the first digital register of Black films made from 1915 to 1979, and cultural critic Shamira Ibrahim, who wrote a thoughtful and deeply researched review of The Woman King and her newsletter, Shamira Explains It All. And before we get too far, let me be clear. We all thoroughly enjoyed the movie. I just saw people at the top of their class delivering top-tier dialogue, top-tier playing off of each other, and that is an experience I enjoyed. My initial reaction was just awe. I was really in awe of Gina and Viola's prowess. Like, it felt evident that they were working towards this moment their entire career. But enjoying something doesn't mean you don't wrestle with it. And that almost goes double for a film set in the midst of the slave trade. In my conversation with Maya and Shamira, I wanted to talk about how we square satisfying stories with real-life history. Here's our chat. In an interview, Viola Davis said that the part of the movie that we love is also the part of the movie that is terrifying to Hollywood, which is, it's different, it's new, end quote. Maya, how does The Woman King compare to the Hollywood films about slavery or the slave trade by Black filmmakers that have come before it? You know, that wasn't the thought that I had mm-hmm. about this film. Like, I think that this film, if I may, fits in mm-hmm. nicely to the Black woman's film canon. Mm. Like, I wouldn't say that there are many films that discuss this, but if I think about it as a film, the Black woman's film canon that pushes past the confines of Black women being powerless and nameless and pushes to gather imagery that we're multifaceted humans, it's Black women directors taking representations that they want to see a Black woman on screen in their own hands and being dynamic with that intention. I also think that when you think about Black women's imagery in film, there's a lack of imagination for what Black women can be on screen. And it has to be pigeonholed because if you really think about it, this film in many ways is the first of its kind. I wanted to actually specifically also like pitch it toward you, Shamir, because you wrote a really fantastic, well-researched review of the film. Could you please sort of lay out what this conversation is kind of about around the historical accuracy of the Dahomey and their participation in the slave trade. Like you mentioned that the depiction of slavery in the film was maybe oversimplified. Mm-hmm. Can you lay that out? Yeah, I was like, Oof, you just gave me an easy task right there. Um, the Dahomey Amazons have, you know, been known, of course, for their reputation as warriors, right? But also mm-hmm. have established a reputation as part of the biggest slaveholders of the region, being responsible for the second most active slaveholding port, right, for the door of no return. If we're lionizing the Dahomey Amazons and the Dahomey Kingdom, we are by proxy then lionizing um, Africans who were, one, actively participating in, and two, actively supporting the transport of slaves. Um, So as the 
film actually came out, there was a strong sector of Boycott the Woman King that came out on opening weekend that said that they were refusing to see The Woman King. I cannot speak to how hefty that trend got, but Mm -hmm. that was a thing that was happening. And I think it's very easy to say that people are perpetuating myths or perpetuating inaccuracies and not sit in the reality of this is a history that's been undertold, right? Mm. This is a history that is irreconciled on both sides of the Atlantic, right? I've spent time in Ghana. Um, I've lived in Ghana for about six months back in 2010. This is something that's undertold on that side of the Atlantic just because of the amount of pain and, you know, shame that comes with that. Because, you know, when people are stolen, those are entire communities back on the continent as well. Like, those are entire villages. So, for example, when people talk about the Dahomey as slavers, quote-unquote, they're talking about the Dahomey capturing Yoruba kingdoms. So those are entire Yoruba communities that lost people, right? That's not like a mythical like right. vacuum that became African-Americans, you know what I mean? So there are entire Yoruba communities that lost ancestors. Mm. And when you think about that level of pain that still reverberates on the continent, that's still very visceral for many people. And I think sometimes you forget that that was not that long ago. Um, so I think part of the problem that Gina Prince-Bythewood is getting through is that the film does a lot of what you know you're expected to do in um, filmmaking, mm-hmm. which is show, not tell, right? right? But how do you do show, not tell when this has not been told, right? I think right. that's the actual Ooh. problem and the actual dissonance is that if you are someone with a working knowledge of a lot of this history, you can sit and see, okay, this is what they're alluding to in this scene. And those are kind mm-hmm. of the working gaps that tend to come up in something that is as Latin as this, that affects the entire Black diaspora, where there is such heavy topic matter when we are at a cultural moment when we are literally fighting American government to preserve our history, right, here in the United States. Mm. And so, unfortunately, Gina is not just fighting Hollywood. She's literally fighting American history. Um, and that all comes Ooh. to a fulcrum for her when she's trying to do her magnum opus which, yes, in an ideal world, should give her the liberty to play around and let her take her liberties. This movie was not going to resolve this issue. I don't think it should have been expected to resolve this issue. It should be allowed to exist as a Hollywood film. You know, I'm really glad you brought up that point about history because the thing I keep thinking about is, like, I'd love to go back in, like, a time machine to talk to people before and after Malcolm X came out, right? It seems like so frequently that stories like this will crest in entertainment and will become these big budget films before they make it into discourse in any other way. It's almost like you have to make the story saleable before people will then go back or discourse will then wind back to whatever historical record or research or historians are out there. I'm not saying because people are not necessarily uninterested. I think people can see from the response to The Woman King that lots of people are very interested in knowing stories like these. But to your point, even from a historian's perspective, this history is not as accessible as other historical narratives are. It's almost like you have to sell the story so that it ends up on a big screen before it can end up in a book. Yeah. And to that point, even if there is text, you know, Hollywood and just like white supremacist culture at large is very comfortable with the idea of 
um, whatever is constructed for the screen existing as the historical record. Mm. The amount of people I know who refer to the Malcolm X movie, Spike Lee's movie, which is sourced from, of course, Alex Haley's biography of Malcolm X, right? As if that is the authoritative (laughs) record of Malcolm X's life, as opposed to, one, reading Alex Haley's book, which, of course, has been disputed in different parts, because that has been the most, you know, popularly distributed version of Malcolm X's life, right? And it's unfortunate that Black filmmakers are burdened by that, right? Mm. Stuart Hall said it really well. When he was writing about the formation of Caribbean cinema, he talks about this idea of that culture identity is a matter of always becoming. Mm-hmm. And everything is historical, mm-hmm. and so the historical must undergo transformation. Mm. And Black people are very deeply rooted in history. White people want to forego it because this idea that, oh, that's in the past. Oh, we don't have to worry about that. Right. They can make these fantasies mm-hmm. about history and they just be seen as fantasies. Mm. We take our whole selves everywhere we go. And that with all of the baggage that, that comes with. Up next, Maya Shamira and I discuss Hollywood's obsession with royalty narratives. Plus, why you shouldn't treat these movies like history lessons. After the break. I want to touch on uh, the valorization of kings and queens. Mm-hmm. So like Black Americans, like mm-hmm. myself, have long held on to images of African royalty mm-hmm. as a means of like imagined past. And I think that the celebration of royalty and the expansion of empire that the film depicts is very much in line with that. I wonder like how the film's celebration of royalty and expansion of empire squares, like how do you see that squaring with the changing conversations that I think Black people all across the diaspora have been having around the utility (laughs) and possibly the harm of empires and dynasties and things of that nature. Something that I think is that Hollywood would be the last to let go of that framework because it, you know, it works for them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The aspirational, you know, we were kings, like that is we were was was king. (laughs) (laughs) I think that, you know, honestly, it's a tool that is designed to not get people to contend with the harshness of realities of slavery of slave trading of all of us i think in the american fabric of slavery if you could just think oh you know if i think back and i came from royalty it makes it a little less difficult to imagine you know Mm -hmm. your ancestors past and the present you're reckoning with because of that past Mm -hmm. and yeah, Hollywood's not going to, they're not going to let that go. At the end of the day, The Woman King is a film. Yes. Its main goal is to entertain. And I think we all agree that the film absolutely accomplished that. Absolutely. So my question is like, what's the best we can expect from a movie like this? Like when it's a movie that does involve like some realities of the slave trade um, and it's, telling or retelling a historical story like when when is a movie like that what would it take for a film like that to be considered both a historical success as well as a dramatic triumph i don't know if a movie from the past would be a a fair comparison um i'll think about that but um i'll say that i think twofold which is one wow i had a great time and two i'd love to learn more yeah 
I think a lot of what we've discussed about the pressures of being a Black director kind of influence that. And I don't know if Hollywood is willing to give Black directors that creative freedom to even pursue that. Hmm. So it's kind of a golden handcuff situation to me where it's like, yes, you've got the budget. You've got the one scholar (laughs) on your film. That's what we're giving you. We're checking this box. So I think this would have to be an independent work a work that Hmm. a filmmaker decided to make on their own and um, engage with history and understand that films, as we said, are seen as the source of history. (laughs) And with that understanding that you don't know everything and you cannot know everything, but you want to engage with history fairly, lovingly, all of those things. Maya, Shamira, thank you so much for joining me today. This was, I mean, a very stimulating discussion. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Brittany. Thank you for having me. What a pleasure. That was Maya Cade, creator of Black Film Archive and culture writer Shamira Ibrahim. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Jamila Huxtable and Janet Ujung Lee. It was edited by Kitty Isley and Jessica Plachik. All right, that is all for today's show, but I will be right back here on Friday. Thank you so much for joining me and I'll see you next time.